The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. Dear Lord, we are grateful for who you are. We come here for one reason and one reason alone, what you've done on the cross. You are faithful in that you did not only create us, but even when we fell short of your glory, you chose to save us, to redeem us, to draw us close to you, that we may have a common fellowship in you that transcends all other fellowships, even as we saw previously. One that is in you, baptized in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that truly we are all one in unity as we glorify you here on earth and even as we relate to each other. And this morning, as we consider what it means to be in fellowship with you, we will see that clearly we can have a good relationship with you as well, even though you are enthroned in heaven and we are still on this side of heaven awaiting to be united with you forever. And so, Lord, we pray for this time that you will enlighten us, you will encourage us, and you will challenge us as well. And that we will go out of here having been motivated, having been strengthened, to look to you as one who is near to us, as one who is close to us, and as one who left us a clear example to follow, that we may walk in the path that you did, because that's where you are, that's where we find you. And so, Lord, we pray that truly you will be with us this morning as we consider what it means to be in fellowship with you. We pray all this believing and trusting in your glorious name. Amen. You would agree with me that when it comes to association, there are always two kinds of people that we want to associate with. The first type of people that we normally want to associate with are people who are famous. And because it is not feasible or realistic that we would all be famous, then you settle for the second best thing, to associate with people who are famous. The second type of people that we would like to associate with are people that we can get something from, right? People who can meet a need that we have, because we always need it, and we always have a need, uh, and so we like to associate with people whom can meet that need. And you find that it is because of these two classes of people it is as if the world has reinvented Christ. It's as if there is the Christ of the Bible and then the Christ of the world. Because we want to associate with people who are famous, who are popular, and because of that then, we've made Christ to be popular. Because if you're going to associate with him, then it's more, con more relevant to us to associate with him if he is popular. And you would agree with me when you consider certain aspects. For example, it's an irony, right? that a secular state such as ours and many around the world have gazetted Christian holidays and recognized them as national holidays. Have you ever wondered why that is the case? That nations which are not Christian would recognize Christian holidays as national. It doesn't make sense, does it? But why? It's because we want to make Christ popular if you're going to associate with him. If you'd consider, because we are now approaching December, Christmas. It's not about Christians anymore, is it? 
It's a global holiday celebrated by everyone. Considering a baby in a manger without ever knowing why he came and even caring. And it's mostly about what? Taking a break, going on holiday, going for shopping, right? Getting the latest discounts. And that is what Christmas has become. It's more commercial than Christian. Why? Because we have to popularize Christ if we're going to follow him. Such that the agenda and culture of the church has been transformed to the agenda and culture of the world at all costs. If you're going to follow Christ, he must be someone who is embraced by the world. He must be someone who's famous, who's popular, because naturally that's what we gravitate towards. And then again, we associate with, like I said, people whom we perceive can meet our needs. And again, that is what we've made Christ to be. Many come to the church. Why? Because they perceive that Christ can meet all my needs. That's why we have the so-called prosperity gospel. And it's thriving because what's the main message? Your best life now and Christ is here for no other reason other than to satisfy your needs. What needs do you have? Bring them before the Lord because ultimately that is why he is here. And that's why even as Christians, many times we become anxious, right? And impatient and even grumpy with the Lord. Why? Because we perceive that, Lord, I have this need and you're not meeting it. That is why you're here anyway. That's why I'm associating with you. And so many even flock to churches just to hear such messages, a prophet prophesying and saying, God will do this and God will do that. And then year in, year out, you keep holding on to things that don't exist. From a biblical standpoint, we see that clearly there's a Christ whom the world has invented of their own, one who's popular and there to meet their needs, and there's a Christ of the Bible. The reason why I say this is, first of all, you look at the Bible and his own testimony as well, Christ was never popular. When he walked the earth, nothing was further from that. He was never popular. In fact, the opposite is true. When you read Luke chapter 4 and verse 29, and this is very interesting because Christ had just begun his ministry. He had just begun his ministry. And this is what it says there. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And he had just begun his ministry. Not even, they didn't even wait enough to have a series of sermons from him. Just the moment he opened his mouth, he was good enough to be thrown over the cliff. You don't do this to someone who's popular, someone who's famous. You embrace them and want to associate with him. Not only, that wasn't the only instance, but in other instances they sought to kill him. And ultimately they did. In Matthew 26, and of all the people, the religious leaders, because you would have thought that if there's anyone who would embrace Christ, it was the religious leaders. But they rejected him and even plotted to kill him. In Matthew 26, this is what the Bible says from verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together, verse 4, in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. You don't do this to someone who's popular. And indeed, they killed him. When you read on in chapter 27, from verse 27, 
It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Look at verse 28. And they stripped him. They stripped him. You don't do this to someone who's popular. And put a scarlet robe on him. Verse 29. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they did what? They mocked him. Saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked him. That is the king of the Jews. You don't do this to someone whom you believe is the king of the Jews. You don't. Verse 30, and they spit on him. They spit on him. You don't do this to someone whom you regard as popular, a celebrity. No, you look to embrace them. You seek an autograph from them. You do not spit on them. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Verse 31, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him to crucify him. And verse 50 confirms that he yielded up his spirit. They mocked him all the way to his death. This is certainly not someone who was popular. As well, not only was he not popular, but the other thing, he never embraced prosperity or the prosperity gospel as we have it, that Christ is just there to meet all our needs. Quite the opposite. When you look at the Bible, and it's very interesting, listen to what Christ himself says. In John chapter 12, for example, his very words are, the poor you will always have with you. The poor you will always have with you, John chapter 12, verse 8. And even when you read Leviticus and you read Deuteronomy, you see that even though Israel was going to the promised land, the land filled with milk and honey, the most prosperous territory at the time, Moses was making provisions for them to take care of the poor, telling them, do not glean all your corn when you harvest the fields. Leave some for the poor. Don't glean all the way to the fence. Why? Because you'll have with you, even in a land flowing with milk and honey, Moses was telling the people that they will have poor people. And here Christ in John 12 is saying, the poor you will always have with you. If he was truly here to meet all our needs, then he would have said the opposite, right? That I've come to take care of the poor so that there may be no more poor people. When the rich young ruler came to him and asked, what can I do to be saved? Christ said, well, sell everything and follow me. The opposite, right? Give up everything. Not that I will give you everything. Give up everything. It is interesting to consider that there's a prime candidate for prosperity in the Bible. The so-called widow, the old lady, in Luke chapter 21. And Christ was there as they were giving their offering into the coffers. And Christ himself looks at this lady and said, you know what, from her two coins, from her penny, she's given all her living. And you would think that Christ would look at this lady and say, she's a widow, she's poor, and on top of that, she's given all her living to the coffers. And that that was a prime candidate for prosperity. But then Christ just looks at her and says, well, what you've done is commendable. And then he just walks away. If there was ever anyone that he could have made rich, surely we all agree that this was a prime candidate. But he did not. He did, it, he did not. When someone wanted to follow him, a scribe, and approached him and said, may I follow you? He said, you know what? You need to be 
careful that you know what you're asking for because the animals are even better. Because he says there in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, foxes have holes and birds have nests. As for me, I have nothing. I have nothing. It's something interesting that you consider even with the apostles that when Christ was leaving and ascending into heaven and he leaves them the greatest mission ever known to man and he even tells them, you know what, this gospel that I leave you, you should spread it not only in Jerusalem, not only in Judea, Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the world. He gave them a global mission, a global mandate. And you'd think, because this mission was so grand, that it would also attract what, grand resources, right? That he would leave them all the money there is in the world because of the magnitude of the size of the mission. But then you consider Acts chapter 3, whereby the disciples, the apostles, come across a lame person. And, they ask, and, and he asked the apostles, a poor person, a poor person at the temple at the gate, and he asked the apostles to give him some, to, some money. And then the apostle says, you know what, we have no silver and gold. We have no silver and gold. But what we have is just miraculous power. Then they healed him. But think about that. Prime candidates for all the resources the world has to offer. But Christ leaves them nothing. Such that they say, you know what, even to someone who's poor and disabled, we have nothing to give you as far as money is concerned. If truly prosperity was his agenda, then he wouldn't have missed such prime candidates for prosperity. So he wasn't popular, and neither did he pursue prosperity as we do from a worldly perspective. So like I said, the world seems to have its own Christ, and the Bible seems to have quite the opposite a very, very different Christ. In James chapter 4, and verse 4, this is what it says. It says, You adulterous people, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is what James said to those who wanted to associate with Christ for their own gain. For their own gain. Associating with him because of popularity and prosperity. Because in the previous verse, this is what James says in chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. To spend it on your passions. And that is the problem with the world today. We want Christ for our own motives. We associate with people because they're popular and the prosperity we perceive will get to them, so we'll get from them. So if we are going to associate with Christ, it has to be the same. What can I get from you? My own gain, my own pleasure. 
It's for your own pleasure. That's why you'd associate with someone who's popular, right? That's why you'd associate with someone for the sake of prosperity. It's for your own pleasure. And so James here is coming and saying, you adulterous people, you are as good as an adulterer and not a worshiper. And this is a theme worth considering because many come to church, many go to church and want to associate with Christ thinking that I am in fellowship with him. I am a Christian. I am a friend of God. I am part of the brethren, part of the body of Christ. But for many, because of the motive, because you seek your own pleasure, Christ is looking and saying, you adulterous people, you do not associate with me other than for your own gain. As James would reveal to us, uh, as the Bible would reveal to us, you are rather an enemy of God. You are rather an enemy of God. Isn't it such a sad state of affairs? I think it's good to ponder upon that. That someone would go to church, many would go to church thinking, yes, I am a friend of God, but God is saying no, but you're actually my enemy. You're actually my enemy. Because you misunderstand who I am, because you're here for your own pleasure. And this is the question we need to ask ourselves. Where do you fall as far as James' assessment? Are you part of the so-called adulterous people, friend of the world but enemy of God? Or are, you or are you truly a friend of Christ? Are you in fellowship with him? Are you in fellowship with him? And that's the theme we are exploring even this morning. You are either a friend of the world or a friend of Christ. This is what Christ himself said as he describes someone who is in fellowship with him, someone who is, is in a relationship with him. In John chapter 15, and you should underline these sections in your Bible if you haven't already. In John chapter 15, Christ himself, himself makes it clear. From verse 18, this is what he says. John 15 from verse 18. This is what it says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, verse 20, the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But, verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. You see, by this statement here, we see that to be in fellowship with Christ simply means to be in an enmity with the world. You cannot have both. You're a friend of Christ automatically. You're an enemy of the world. 
But you see, we often stumble, right? Because as you read there in verse 19, it, it speaks about if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not, therefore the world hates you. That is the stumbling block there. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because that is what we desire. We desire to be loved by the world. No one ever desires to be hated. We desire to be loved by the world. And, and, and this desire is so great that it's as if now we think we are greater than the master. Christ here says, well, the servant is not greater than the master. But for us, because we are so drawn and desire to be loved by the world so much, it's as if you're saying, no, but I want to be greater than Christ. The world hated him, but I think, I think there's room for the world to love me. And that is the stumbling block right there. Why? Because we are seeking popularity from the world. We are seeking prosperity from the world. But Christ here is saying, no, it's not the P of prosperity or the P of popularity. It's rather the P of persecution. The world will hate you. The world will hate you and not love you. And that's the problem. We seek love from the world. Christ is saying it is the opposite if you are going to follow him. And the problem with this is that normally you'll find that as a believer or someone who claims to be one, this is always the temptation, right? To switch Christ on and off. So it's Sunday, we switch him on. And then when it comes Monday, load shedding all week because we switch him off. Why? Because we want popularity and prosperity from the world. We want the world to love us. We don't want the world to persecute us. And that is the problem. And I ask you this morning then, where do you stand? Are you someone who switches Christ on on a Sunday? And it's very easy, right? Because it's a one-time event. You're just here for a couple of hours, then you go. So it's very easy to flick the switch on and off. And then, while you're out in the world, you do everything that you think is right for the world to love you. With Christ, it is different. The world will hate you because you're not greater than your master. You will not crack that code if the master himself never did. To be in fellowship with Christ is to walk in persecution because it is to walk the road that he walked. If you're going to walk with someone, they can't be walking a certain path and you are walking a different path. You can't claim to be walking with them. You can't claim to be in fellowship with them. And so Christ is simply saying, there's a path that I walked and if you're going to be in fellowship with me, if you're going to walk with me, then you take the very same path. And because you're not greater than the master, it will not be different to you. First Peter chapter 2. This is exactly what we see in the Bible. To be in fellowship with Christ. First Peter chapter 2 verse 21. This is what it says. For to this... You have been called because Christ also suffered for you. And then listen to this, leaving you an example. 
Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. If you're going to walk with Christ, fellowship with him, you follow in his steps. And say, so he left us an example. What is the example? He suffered. And he's saying, that's where you will find me, as far as the world is concerned. In Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll just look at a few verses. There are more than this, but in the interest of time, we'll just look at a few. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, this is what it says. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let us go outside and bear the reproach he endured. Let us go outside and suffer with him. In Philippians chapter 3, this is what the apostle said. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of this surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He has suffered the loss of all things. This is the opposite of seeking prosperity. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. There's something of more value. Verse 9 of Philippians 3. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, <coughs> but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and what? The fellowship of his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I have suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. The one thing I want to know is what? To experience the fellowship of his sufferings. And if there is someone who truly knew loss, it's the Apostle Paul. Because he left a lot behind. There's someone who had status in society. But he left all that popularity and prosperity behind to embrace what? Persecution. Why? Because in Christ, he found great gain and he wanted to fellowship in his sufferings. Walking the very path that Christ walked. And the Apostles knew what it meant to be, to, to be in fellowship with Christ more than anyone else. You see, you read about John, rather about Peter in the book of John, chapter 21. Towards the end, you see the Lord himself from verse 18 revealing to Peter uh, the way by which he would die in terms of being martyred for his faith. He would be killed for his faith and his service to the Lord. And you read in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14, he himself acknowledges that I am about to die the very same way that the Lord had revealed to me. I am about to be killed for my faith and service to the Lord. James, the brother of the Lord, of John as well. In Acts chapter 12, from verses 1 and 2, you see that he was killed violently with a sword by Herod. And it's interesting because you think that for someone whom the Lord had invested so much in, a whole apostle, with such great knowledge and such great miraculous power 
that the Lord would let him suffer decades and decades and decades until he's in old age. But prematurely, a whole apostle in Acts chapter 12 is killed, persecuted for his faith and service to the Lord. Even the apostle Paul himself, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I am being sacrificed, he says, and the time of my departure has come because they are about to kill me for my faith and service to the Lord. These are people who knew what it means to be in fellowship with the Lord when it came to suffering. The Lord had left them an example, according to 1 Peter, and they followed in that example. They knew very well, as the Lord had said, just as the world had hated me and persecuted me, it will persecute you as well. And even here on earth, we find that as believers, you're persecuted in various ways. You're persecuted in various ways. I'll just highlight two in the interest of time. We suffer for our faith first of all in our families. In our families. In Matthew chapter 10, this is what it says. From verse 35 to 38. Christ speaking. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It is true. Blood is thicker than water until Christ comes into the equation. Blood is thicker than water until Christ shows up. Because the moment you follow Christ, you are guaranteed that your whole family will reject you if they do not follow him as well. One of the prime examples in scripture that we see as someone who faced persecution from his family, and there are many, is Stephen. His brother Joseph, sorry. You would recall Joseph in the book of Genesis. How his brothers were so hostile to him when he revealed to them what God was doing or about to do with him. Such that they sold him into slavery, not even caring if he would live or die. And they were, when they were confronted by the father, what did they do? They lied. Why would you hate your blood brother so much? For one reason and one reason only. Because of what God is doing in their life. It's because of Christ. Because of their salvation in the plan of the Lord. The second example is in the workplace. 99.99999 people are not happy with where they work. I think I'm the only one. <laughs> people just don't like where they work. People don't like where they work. First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. This is what it says. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You see what the Bible is saying. It's saying, yes, in the workplace you will experience hostility, but be subject to that. For this is gracious, verse 19, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So you will suffer in family, in your family, and you will suffer in the workplace as well. Because if there is a place that tempts you not to walk in integrity, that tempts you to go against your Christian faith, it's in the workplace. Because normally they are corrupt environments and you have bosses who rule unjustly or lead unjustly. And one of the prime examples of this in scripture is obviously Daniel and his friends. If you are aware, as far as those Sunday school accounts are concerned, you know that Daniel was a government official for about 70 years of his life, all his life, serving under the government, serving in Babylon, serving one Babylonian king after another, another beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. And truly, him and his colleagues suffered great persecution. It's as if every other day you could die. No one can interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. His government officials must die. We will not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. You must die. Daniel, I'm praying three times for that. You must die. It's like every other day was an opportunity to just die. You wake up in the morning and you're carpooling. What, what do you think awaits us at work today? I think today is the day we die. I wonder who amongst us has even faced such hostility. That was the type of environment that they served and lived in for decades after decades after decades. Why? Why did they suffer so much? Because of their fellowship with God. That is the only reason. It didn't even matter how gifted they were because the king did acknowledge that. But because of your fellowship with God, your life will always be in danger. But here's the motivation. Here's the motivation. You see, even in these two examples, when you're looking at Joseph and also Daniel and his friends, of course, you must consider the bigger picture. You must consider the bigger picture. Because if you focus on the smaller picture, then you'll be focused on your own life. You'll be thinking about yourself. Me, myself, and I. And I'm the only thing that matters in this world. If you focus on the bigger picture, you will see it for what it truly is. You shouldn't narrow your focus, your vision. Because one of the things that like I said, we do when we do that is that we crumble and, and we bulk at the face of trials and temptations. And we, it's as if we are hopeless and can't see beyond the now, beyond our face, to see that there is a plan, that there is tomorrow. When you look at such gifted men, if your focus was narrow and you're just looking at the here and now, you'll be wondering, God, this doesn't make sense. Such gifted men, when you look at Joseph, even Pharaoh acknowledged that there is no one who has the spirit of God such as this, this man. When you look at Daniel, the same thing. The king found no one who is wiser than him. 
And then, on top of their wisdom and intellect, they were also righteous individuals. They were known for righteousness and suffered greatly for it. And you'd think that, Lord, faced with such prime candidates, the cream of the crop, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, you would think that the Lord would make conditions favorable towards them. These men are so gifted, they're so righteous. You know what? I'll make conditions perfect for them. I'll, I'll let them live and serve in Israel where there's the golden age of prosperity so that they may enjoy and maximize their potential. But then look, with Joseph, no, Joseph, actually you will be in exile, a foreigner in exile under Egypt. An idolatrous and wicked nation. Daniel, you will be in exile likewise, likewise for at least 70 years under Babylon. Wicked nation as well. Wicked leaders, idolatrous leaders. These men served in some of the worst conditions ever known to man. Yet they were the cream of the crop. But it is because they were focused on the bigger picture. Because you see, with Joseph, this is what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He's speaking to his brothers. And he's bringing his brothers in to the bigger picture and to focus on that. Because this is what he says. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph was bringing them in on the bigger picture and revealing that, yes, you know what, your focus was narrowed when you're persecuting me, when you're selling me into slavery and did not even caring whether I would live or not, it was a bigger picture. God wanted to preserve his people. And it is through these very people that God would bring his salvation. Because ultimately, he forms the nation of Israel, Israel centuries later. And then ultimately, Christ would come from these people. So God preserved these people because of his plan of salvation. And that is the bigger picture. Had Joseph focused on, on, on himself, he would have missed it. Even with Daniel as well. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 3 and verse 28, this is what we read. Nebuchadnezzar speaking says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, of course from the fiery furnace, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. You see, Nebuchadnezzar called all the leaders of the world to Babylon to worship a golden statue. And Nebuchadnezzar said, whoever doesn't worship this statue will die. And these three men said, it's fine. If we die, we die. If he saves us, he saves us. It doesn't matter. And the Lord saved them. And you can't miss uh, the wisdom of the Lord in this instance. Because he saved them in front of all the world leaders to see. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is calling a worship service dedicated to himself. And then God turns it around and says, actually, I'm the one who called this service. Because I want to show the leaders of the world who I am. You see, God was able to call it evangelize real time and on a global scale, without Facebook, Twitter, live TV, YouTube, without all of that. Just have Nebuchadnezzar call all the leaders of the world in one place, have them worship this God, 
and then I'll just have my people who will not, and I'll save them from a fire heated seven times, so that all the leaders of the world will see that, you know what, there's no other God besides me. And with that one act, I evangelize the whole world, because the leaders will go back talking to their people about me. The bigger picture. If Daniel and his friends never obeyed or followed God, how then would the world know him and about him? With Joseph, there was a bigger picture. With Daniel, there was a bigger picture. That God would preserve the people through whom the Savior would come, and on this side that God would be made known to the world in one act. There's always a bigger picture. And the picture is all... The reason why there's always a bigger picture is because God is always in the picture. God is always in the picture. And that is how we should think. That is how our mindset should be. When suffering for Christ, when undergoing persecution for Christ, when fellowshipping with Christ and suffering for it, you should always have that bigger picture in mind. That it's not about me, but God. And in the end, they should see Him. Because if you're fellowshipping with Christ, the idea is that you're so close to Him, that as they look at you, they see Him. It doesn't make sense, right? If I'm standing here and there's someone next to me, if you're looking at me, you will see the person standing next to me as well. You won't just see me, you'll see the person next to me. And so the idea is that you're so close to Christ, walking in fellowship with Him, such that when people see you, they see Him. And that is exactly what was happening with Joseph and Daniel. So close to Christ that people see him because there is always that bigger picture. That is the challenge that I leave to you. When people look at you, who or what do they see? Who or what do they see? Do they see the bigger picture or do they see you? Narrow vision on a smaller picture. The ultimate picture, truly, and the biggest picture of them all, is Christ on the cross, isn't it? In Matthew 26, verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If that cup passed from Christ, there is no salvation today. We are not here today. We would be elsewhere and we would be condemned, awaiting judgment. You see, many of us always cry to God when suffering and say, God, please let that cup pass from me. I am not able to endure it. It is because we are looking at the smaller picture. It is about me, what I want, what I need. Why do I have to suffer? Why can't the world just love me? And God is saying, no, focus on the bigger picture. You see it with Joseph. You see it with Daniel. Ultimately, you see it with Christ. Salvation only came through the suffering of Christ. Let that not leave your head or your mind today. For us, as well, there is that bigger picture. And it's clear in the scriptures. Many verses, I'll just highlight a few. 
First Peter again, chapter 4. And we'll look at Romans 8 as well. As we close, we must consider these passages. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. This is what the Bible says to verse 14. As we consider the bigger picture for us as well. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. So Peter is saying your trials as a believer, they're not strange. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory excuse me, is revealed. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, he's speaking about the glory which is to be revealed in verse 13. And he's saying, oh, you're actually blessed. It's a good thing to suffer for Christ. Why? Because you are blessed. The spirit of glory rests upon you. And there's a glory that awaits to be revealed of which you are a beneficiary. Romans 8 verses 16 to 18 speaks in the same fashion. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, what you can't miss in these passages is that there's something we call a transition when it comes to walking with Christ. There's a transition. Christ is saying, walk with me here on earth. Suffer for my sake here on earth. As I have suffered and left you an example as we read in First Peter. And then he's saying, when your time here on earth is done, it's not as if I live and say, well, thank you very much. It was good to see you suffer for me. This is what these passages are saying. They're saying when you begin to walk with Christ and walk with him, the walk never ends. That is the idea. The walk never ends. It never ends because when you pass on from this world, you continue to walk with him in eternity. You see, Christ, yes, is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But what he's revealing to us here is that I have not called you to suffer down there and I'm just seated here in glory enjoying myself. And that is the end of it. He's saying, no, when you are down there, I am walking with you. And when the walk is finished, it continues in eternity. Why? Because I'll bring you where I am. That is what it means to walk with Christ. And to focus on the bigger picture. Yes, I suffer in this world as he suffered, but as he is also in glory and glorified, the same as well awaits me. And so these passages are saying, focus on that bigger picture. And we have the perfect example in the Bible. You cannot miss this. In the book of Acts chapter 7, you see Stephen being stoned for his faith, for his preaching, for preaching the gospel, for walking with Christ. And it is very interesting that as he is being stoned, Christ doesn't even wait for him to die, for him to see the transition. He opens up the heavens and he says, Oh, I see the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. Stephen was saying, I did not even have to wait to die to see him. 
to walk in the transition, to be glorified with him, I could see him as I transition. And that is the greatest example we have in scripture of what it means to walk with the Lord. It never ends. The Lord says, walk with me here and I will walk with you still in eternity. The glory that is to be revealed is not worthy to be compared with the suffering that we endure here. So forget the prosperity, forget the popularity. Persecution truly for Christ is the way to go because it is priceless as far as the reward of it. Because as you walk with him here, you transition and you continue to walk in eternity. And the glory, as Paul tells us, is not worth being compared with the sufferings that we endure here. It is incomparable. It is incomparable. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that you can compare to walking with Christ. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come before you pondering your word and praying that truly you will enlighten us and convict us concerning what it means to be in fellowship with you. To walk with you in such a manner that is consistent with your word and in such a manner that is consistent with the example that you left us such that even though we may be persecuted here on earth, we will not lose sight of the great glory that is to be revealed. Because just as you are here on earth with us, as well you will continue to be with us in heaven, in eternity. And we are comforted because you left this assurance to your disciples in Matthew 28 that you will be with them to the end of the age. And so we know that yes, as much as you're seated at the right hand of the Father, you are with us. You are with us here to the end of the age, walking with us daily. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will help us by the power of the Holy Spirit not to be overcome by the temptations of the world, but that we will consistently maintain our walk in the path which you have walked, and that we will not stray into other paths, thinking that in that we will find popularity and prosperity, but that we will walk in the path which you've laid out for us, even in times that it may attract persecution. Because we know in the end, not only are you with us, but the glory that is to be revealed is not comparable with the sufferings of this present age. And that we'll always be reminded, in times of suffering, just like Stephen, that we will always, we will always look up and just have this mind that, Lord, we know through the eyes of Stephen we see you seated at the right hand of the Father and that we know that ultimately we are coming to you. And in this we'll find great motivation to journey this earth, even though the world may hate us. We pray all this believing and trusting in your good name and your promise. Amen.